0: Assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everybody to an amazing Saturday session, my favorite day of the week. Um, especially now that we only do this once a week, it's extra, extra special. I'm so looking forward to continuation day three of Surah al Nisa. Um, I just wanted to point out, um, you know, yesterday in my um, in my weekly email, I sent out a bunch of links um, that had to do with the Uyghurs and the start of the Winter Olympics in China, which is just so. Um, heartbreaking and and upsetting and, you know, there are certain events, I guess, that happen in life that make the true colors of people become very apparent. And this is one of these occasions where it's clear, you know, who is it that is speaking up on behalf of the Uyghurs, who is not, who is um, obviously, you know, has the opportunity to say something and clearly doesn't do it. Um, And, you know, who is just um, on which side of the, you know, of the equation that you are. And sadly, um, you know, our, our Muslim um, world is really um, not <laughs> stepping up to, to its responsibility. Um, uh, there's an article that came out a couple of days ago um, from The Atlantic that Joe just shared with me called The Muslim World Isn't Coming to Save the Uyghurs, which is so sad, um, right? Atlantic is a, is a pretty powerful magazine, and when it just, the, the, the title is so clear. The Muslim World Isn't Coming to Save the Uyghurs. And goes on to point out that you know um, this author, who is Yasmin Sirhan, points out if she were to give out a gold, silver, and metal and bronze medal to the countries that um, are taking at least like the minimal stand, she would give a gold to the U.S., Britain, Canada, and um, a small handful of others, which include Australia, the um, Lithuania. Um, in coming forward to saying that, okay, we're just going to um, not attend the games. We're going to you know, boycott diplomatically because of human rights abuses. Um, so it's like the bare minimum that they can do. And the silver medal would go to countries like Austria, Sweden, and the Netherlands, and they're the officials who don't attribute their absence from the games to um, human rights issues, but actually to the pandemic. And then the last bronze, which I wouldn't even award um, any kind of prize to France and the Czech Republic, who say that they've dismissed d- diplomatic boycotts of the Games as insignificant and a misuse of the Olympic idea. Um, you know, it's it's just, um, I shared like one link that was an opinion by, you know, Fried Zakaria, where he writes about how, Sad, there's nothing to be celebratory about when it comes to the Olympics, but doesn't even bother to mention anything about the Uyghurs. Like, doesn't even really touch the human rights issue, but talks about the pandemic and, you know, the lockdown and all of this stuff. I mean, clearly, you know, it's it's one of these, again, opportunities where you really see the true colors. And so in terms of our Muslim, you know, leadership, so-called Muslim leadership, um, the countries of Saudi Arabia and um, Pakistan, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates—they actually go out of their way to endorse China's policies um, against the Uyghurs and are slated to attend to the opening ceremony. Or I guess they did. I guess the, the, the opening ceremony already took place. Um, and you know, this article goes on to point out about just you know the the power that these countries have. You know, they have a lot of weight and they could do a lot, but obviously they're not interested and not willing to. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just one of these things that is really frustrating because it's so clear, right? I mean, we live in a time where there is a genocide. These are Uyghur Muslims. Um, and the sad thing is, like, even this article points out that, you know, countries in the Middle East or these Muslim countries have nothing really um, in, um, nothing in common with the Uyghur Muslims except for their faith. As if it's something very small, and you know, here we learn in the Holocaust that this is everything. You know, in the last session we talked about how we must think about you know all Muslims as part of our own body, and if one body is suffering, then the entire body, one part of the body is suffering, the entire body is suffering. Um, it, it's really it's hard to say much except to just be you know utterly disgusted and. Um, to just want to um, lend support to people who are out there on the front lines um, doing a lot of work that can help. Um, you know, I, I obviously, like you know, us as individuals, it's, it's frustrating and it's it's heartbreaking that we feel we can't really do anything. But the, the minimal that we can do is support organizations um, like the Uyghur Human Rights Project, for example. And I was so happy to see that, actually, after I sent out my email, I didn't know this, that, um, they were just nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize um, because of their work in support Of the uyghurs and bringing it to worldwide attention so this is an incredible group that you know you can find them online it's um uyghur human rights project uhrp.org and it's easy to donate um and you know get behind the work that they're doing um so hopefully we can at least make some kind of difference and i guess i would just say that i was sort of um happy i guess i don't know a little bit pleased by this other article that i came across which is you know you see that god communicates in so many different ways and clearly god is not helping the um the olympics in china um they are relying you know it's the winter olympics so a lot of the stuff happens on on snow and because there is no snow they are now 100% reliant on artificial snow, which you know is extremely expensive. It's extremely energy intensive, water intensive, and um, apparently there's an extreme drought happening in that area. So um, it's going to cost them a lot of money to have these games. But it's uh, again another um, horrible indication of where we are climate change wise. Because by creating artificial snow, um, you are you know um, they have to. This was an interesting statistic. They have to come up with 1.2 million cubic meters of snow to cover roughly 800,000 square meters of competition area what this estimate it comes to is an estimate of 49 million gallons of water to produce the needed snow and when that's you know it's it's horrific when you think about um you know how rapidly the world is running out of fresh water this is enough to fill 3600 average backyard swimming pools or more to the point It's a day's worth of drinking water for nearly 100 million people. So that is just absolutely stunning. Um, And so it's it's a dangerous precedent because, you know, because of climate change, artificial snow is needed more and more around the world, not just in China. But you know, all of these things that just because we can do them doesn't mean that we should do them. And they're just further indication that this, you know, everything is just wrong. but so just, you know, so people are not forgetting about the plight of the Uyghurs. I hope that, you know, we will, we can continue to at least highlight these stories, um, try to make it apparent to people who, um, you know, obviously don't want to talk about it um, and, um, you know, exert some pressure. I think for us, um, especially in these halakhas, you become so sensitized to these, these sorts of injustices that you feel you just have to speak out, you have to do something, um, what, however small. And if nothing um, else, just, you know, pray for the Uyghurs and hope that, that things um, can change. Um, and anyway, I'm, I'm so excited. You know, the, these halakhas have been such a lifeline, um, I, for me personally, and for people who write to me, and they say that, you know, with the, with all of the craziness in the world, all of the injustice, it's really incredible to come back at least even once a week, to touch base with, you know, what is it that God really wants from us? What are we learning, you know? And, and to feel like, um, you know I think people are are so used to compartmentalizing things when we come here we bring them together and it's you know it's not like Islam can be lived on certain days of the week or certain hours of the week but when you start to feel things all meshed together you start feeling like a whole person and then you feel a lot more energized to to fight for causes like this and I I hope that that you know other people are feeling the same way that I I am um, and that this cause becomes your own inshallah so um thank you for joining us. I'm so excited for another session and um look forward to um an incredible some more incredible insights inshallah.
1: Alhamdulillah <laughs> Alhamdulillahirabbil alamin wa subhanallah wal alim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad Wala Ali alihi tayyibin Wala Ashabi ashabihi al-muhtadeen. وعلى من اتبعوا بحسن إلى يوم الدين، الله لي صدري ويسر لي أمري. من لساني قولي يا رب سبحان الله We are doing al النساء uh, at this time. Uh, the, the message of al النساء is so clear that to be a Muslim, it is a moral commitment to, a moral and a principled commitment to stand against Istada'af, which in our in in the language of the moment we live in is to stand against disempowerment. Before I launch into Surah al-Nisa again, as this is, I'm just, I'm just recording this for sake of history. I mean, I'm not even necessarily speaking to the people that are with me right now. But as uh, expected, um, I, I'm I'm uh, not happy about having to cut down the Holocaust once a week. Um, but as expected, I'm now um, extremely busy, extremely overwhelmed. Um, and the appeals I've made, as SubhanAllah, as I've also anticipated, instead of the number of people attending the halaqah increasing, the number of the people attending the halakha at least live, decreased, um, which is just the classic, typical dynamic um, when people find that they might have to think about a moral obligation and a historical obligation and a historical duty for all the complaints and all the whining and complaining and, and um, the spew out of Muslims, um, there is a consistent pattern of selfishness and self centeredness that when Muslims stand in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation, so many Muslims stand in a situation where they have to bear, take responsibility for something. And in this case, the message of the Quran, um, they run away. They make a million excuses to say, well, the responsibility doesn't fall upon me. SubhanAllah, the the entire message of Surah Al-Baqarah is that it is all about how you handle moral responsibility. That there are no entitlements. Allah is not going to come to your aid if you don't deserve that aid. There are no blessings that are going to befall you just because of your du'a that it is all about a commitment to moral action. Indeed, indeed, the entire meaning of shukr, the entire meaning of gratitude, is that you use what Allah has given you for the moral purposes that Allah has defined. the entire meaning of shukr, the entire meaning of gratitude is that you use what Allah has given you for the moral purposes that Allah has defined. Shukr is not prayer, is not fasting, and I'm not saying alhamdulillah. Shukr is using your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your body, your wealth, to serve the moral objectives that Allah demands that you serve. And the moral objectives, at their core, are intuitively known to us. Equity, truth, justice, resisting oppression, the theme of Surat al-Nisa. Removing oppression in all its forms, but even at a very minimal core basis to support the message of the Quran. The Prophet, the Quran tells us that the Prophet has one complaint about his ummah in the hereafter. that they've neglected the message of the Qur'an. If Allah tells us that the Prophet ﷺ, that is the Prophet's complaint in the hereafter, a priori you think, am I going to be in the camp of those that the Prophet complains about? Or in the camp of the minority that the Prophet says, well, this person doesn't fall in, in that category. Someone who's ignored the Quran. And ignoring the Quran, or not ignoring the Quran, is not reading the Quran repeatedly again and again. If you read the Quran a million times, but it doesn't translate into shukr, into using what Allah has given you to serve, the objectives that Allah has defined for you, then you're ignoring the Qur'an. Each person has an absolute moral obligation to ask herself or himself, what can I do Allah has put me in this situation, in this place, at this moment. Why Allah has put me here, now, in the space I am in, at the time I am in, is something up to Allah. But what is your moral responsibility? And how can you serve that moral responsibility? Have you done everything that you can do? Considering the message that is coming about the Quran, and I think that the entire everyone who's heard me and everyone who's encountered me, and I am forced to squeeze the Quran in once a week in simply. The time that I, it, it, you know, other people have full-time jobs. And when they're not doing their full-time jobs, they're taking vacations. They're going out. They're spending time with their children or their, whatever they do. But the expectation that we have towards Islam is that do your full-time job and, on, and your extra time, teach the Quran. It is obscene. I have a point also to make about what Grace said. Let us be very clear. See how often the Quran talks about hypocrites and hypocrisy. See how often the Quran, including in Surah al Nisa, which we will come come to because the message is again there the quran parallels injustice and disempowerment and lack of shukr lack of shukr is not just simple ingratitude but it the deviance or deviating from the real message of using what allah has given you to serve allah's purposes Every time Allah has given you money and you spend this money on things that Allah has not told you to, or Allah didn't define as proper venues for spending, you are engaging in an act of kufr, the opposite of shukr. Every time you spend the money in what Allah has defined for you, you are engaging in an act of shukr, not an act of kufr. Same thing with what you do with your knowledge. Same thing with what you do with your position. Same thing with what you do with your degrees, what you do with your prestige, what you do with everything that Allah has blessed you with. Do you engage in an act of kuf or do you engage in an act of shukr? Do you engage in an act of kuf or do you engage in an act of shukr? That is up to you. No one but Allah knows the full extent of what you do. No excuses are going to deceive anyone. No running away, no avoidance, no claims of, well, I'm busy, well, I have to take care of this, well, I have... None of it is going to work because there is complete and absolute transparency between you and Allah. So, look how often the Qur'an in Surat Al-Baqarah, in Surat Al-Umran, in Surat, in, in Surat al nisa focuses that part and parcel of those who claim to have Iman, they're hypocrites. Hypocrisy in the, is embedded in their hearts. So let me be very clear. All Muslims who claim to be Muslims, who see the plight of the Uyghurs, and choose to turn away, to ignore it, to make excuses for it, to philosophize it, to legitimize it, are munafiqoon, they're hypocrites. All Muslims who are aware of plight of scholars sitting rotting in, in Saudi jails and who, ignore, who make the decision, well, I want to be able to go to hajj, I'm just going to ignore that. All Muslims who ignore the, the atrocities taking place in Yemen. Just recently, the Saudis bombed a Yemeni school bus the videos of the children who most of the children were killed but the children who survived the videos of their injuries is horrific and yet there are plenty of Muslims who think that the Saudis bombing these children on that school bus doesn't affect in any way their decision to go to Hajj, to spend money in Saudi Arabia, their their, their relationship to those who are allied to Saudi Arabia. You are hypocrites. You are munafiqoon. All Muslims who can see what the Egyptians are doing to the people of Gaza, forcing Palestinians to live in a concentration camp, building a huge wall that separates between Egypt and Gaza. Extorting enormous amount of money from these Palestinians living under oppression just to allow medicine and food, or just to allow a Gazan to leave Gaza to go to school. You have to bribe Egyptian officials thousands and thousands of dollars. All those who know about the 60,000 up from 60 to 100,000 Muslims rotting in Egyptian prisons, who know about the massacre of Rabbah, and sit there and say, well, I don't have a problem with Sisi. You are munafiqoon, you are hypocrites. The way I see, it is time any Muslim all those who know about Hindus raping Indian women, it has now become a systematic pattern. Hindu men brag about they first announce who they're going the Muslim woman they're going to target on social media. Then they target the Muslim woman, and often she is raped in a gang rape, by a gang. And the rape is filmed and then posted on websites like motherless.com until perhaps the site gets noticed and takes down the video. But some of videos are never taken down. And all of this takes place in social media. And yet there are plenty of Muslims all around the world who are more than happy to ignore all of that and pretend it, it is not happening. It doesn't affect the way they feel about the Emirate. It doesn't affect the way they feel about Saudi Arabia. It doesn't affect the they feel about going to India. It doesn't affect the way they feel about Egypt. It doesn't affect the way they feel about anything. You are hypocrites. You are not Muslim. You are hypocrites. You are munafiqoon. It is time that we call things by their names. The hypocrites are hypocrites. Has anyone doubted the authenticity, the authenticity of the hadith that Muslims are but a single body has reached the level of tawatur? Tawatur, it is actually a level of tawatur equal to the Quran itself. Meaning, there is very little doubt that the Prophet actually said it. What do you do with that? So the Muslims in China suffer and you don't care. The Muslims in India suffer and you don't care. The Muslims in Saudi Arabia suffer and you don't care. Muslims in Yemen suffer and you don't care. The Muslims in Burma suffer and you don't care. The Muslims in Libya suffer and you don't care. The Muslims in Yemen suffer and you don't care. In what way are you a Muslim? You are anchored in hypocrisy. I don't care how many times you say Salat and Taslim. I don't care how many times you say Tasbih and tahmid. I don't care about what turban you put on your head. I don't care about the length of your beard. I don't care about the form of your gown. I don't care about any of it. You are a hypocrite. We are not going to move forward. A Muslim that doesn't do a single act of sujood but uses what Allah gave them to serve Allah's moral purposes is superior to a Muslim who doesn't miss a prayer but is a kafir. Kafir because they have no shukr. They don't use their eyes to serve what Allah said they should do. They don't use their hands to serve Allah's purposes. They don't use their tongue to serve Allah's purposes. They don't use their ears to serve Allah's purposes. They don't use their wealth to serve Allah's purposes. They're a kafir. Kufr na'ma. Hypocrites. It is the true pandemic of the Muslim world. Hypocrisy. The true pandemic of the Muslim world. Let's take a couple of minutes break and then we'll start, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahumma la tuachizna en nasiina uqta'na, ya Rabb. Allahumma la tuhammina ma la taqatil anna bihqafu anna wa khfir lana wa ya alihi azim. Project. So just a quick recap before we continue on. Shreef says that I stopped at around 30. We notice again just emphasizing that An Nisa opens up with this extremely powerful message, an egalitarian message that you have all been created from nafs from, from wahida and that you have been created men and women and we know that there is a social project, an actual real life issues that the Quran tackles head on and We know that these real life issues had everything to do with the most disempowered elements in society. That in this culture, whether the culture of Mecca or the culture of Medina, most often inheritance was limited to the older sibling all the inheritance would be would be centered in the older sibling of course there's a, in, there's a considerable amount of diversity and there are certain things that are uniform what is what was uniform is that they would not allow women to inherit and they would not allow males who were weak or ill or in some other way deficient to inherit because if they could not fight, in other words, if they could not be recruited in battle, then they were disinherited. Also, when it came to dowries, the paying of dowries was a known practice, but it was always kept by the guardian, the the dowry would go from the suitor to the guardian, and it, women were not allowed to keep their dowries. It, other practices that reeked of disempowerment were the way the wealth of orphans was managed, and it was not unusual at all that you would, if among the practices, and I I don't think I've talked a lot about that, but among the practices was that when it comes to orphans, often you would not allow them to marry. And you would hope to, by preventing them to marry, you're also preventing them from, you would refuse to give them their wealth and not allow them to marry, and not allowing them to marry, they would remain your charge and you control their wealth by effectively controlling their their fate so they're not allowed to leave your home they're not allowed to to marry and form a family and so you that was a very common form of uh, abuse as we'll also see later on in surah an-nisa because surah al nisa deals with this very, quite specifically okay and we sort of the the arc narrative. The arc narrative for Surah al-Nisa was the story of um, that was narrated by Saeed ibn Jubair. Um, that a man from Ghatafan, um had orphans, and when they reached an age of maturity, they refused to give them their money. And the mother of these orphans went and complained to the Prophet and this sort of became the the arc narrative for Surah al nisa Reportedly, Surah An-Nisa was revealed after the complaint of this woman to the Prophet But what is really interesting is that this is a, a common prototype, where you have a woman going to the prophet, complaining about something, and then you get a Quranic treatment. And the trajectory of this Quranic treatment is always for further empowerment. Similarly, with the issue of slaves, the practice of refusing to allow slaves to get married, so you, to, to, the, which the Quran tackles directly, that you are not allowed, you are not permitted to prevent slaves from marrying outside. And also the practice of thinking that you own slaves and so you have access to them sexually was also reported and also something tackled by Surat al-Nisa. I forgot to mention last halakha that in Tafsir of al-Nasafi and Tafsir of um, Abu Hayyan al-Tawhidi, on the issue of slavery, they, may, they comment that slavery is a form of death. And that is why if you murder, if you kill someone by mistake, the way to expiate the sin is to free a slave if you if you can't free a slave that uh, if you don't if you don't have slaves to free but if you then we go to fasting but if you own slaves then the only way to make up for the sin of killing someone by mistake is to free a slave and if you can afford to then you buy a slave and you free the slave. And Abu Hayyan and both, uh, in, in, in both of these Tafsirs say that they're, they're, they explain this law by saying that it is because slavery is a form of death, so because you've exterminated a life by mistake, the answer to that is to give life to someone by freeing them which when you look at the coll- collective narratives like this or n- narratives which when, you know, a companion complains, explains what Islam is about and says what Islam did is to come to take people from ibadat al-bashar to worshipping human beings or to الله, to to worshipping Allah. The fact that Historically, the historical practice, and this needs a little bit of intellectual maturity to understand, slavery was a widespread, endemic social institution. It had many forms and shapes. If you would have asked a person at the time at the time of the Prophet Well, if you are saying that what Islam is about is to bring an end to human beings worshipping other human beings and worshipping God instead, well, isn't slavery inconsistent with that? I am willing to bet anything their response would have been, well, it depends on what type of treatment you are affording the slave. Do you allow the slave to worship God? Do you require the slave to do more than what is reasonable? Do you feed the slave as you feed yourself? Do you dress the slave as... Do you prevent the slave from having their own property? Or do you prevent the slave from getting married? They would, they would see it in terms of not the institution. That's, that's a historical thinking. That's the way their minds worked. Not the institution, but the, the, the actual micro-mechanics, the micro-dynamics of the practice. For us, we think in, in the modern age, we've learned categorical thinking because this was part of the scientific revolution. So we, we categorize we, in terms of what is empirical, what is not empirical. What's normal, what's paranormal. What's uh, superstitious, what's not superstitious. What is freedom versus lack of freedom what is, we think what is racism versus lack of racism. For better or for worse, we think in terms of these categories. But this is not necessarily how humanity always thought. And it took entire movements in the history of knowledge, the history of the epistemology itself, and consciousness, for people to think in terms of categories. We want a democracy, and a democracy doesn't exist unless I have the right to vote. That's categorical thinking. Democracy, for the modern mind, is not achieved by, well, you know, I'm buddies with the mayor, and I'm buddies with this person, I'm buddies with this person, and they sort of consult me informally, and they won't make a decision unless I'm happy with it. So we have a sort of a consensual... This is pre-modern way of thinking. So... Part of what is interesting in the way the Qur'an deals with istad'af is that it introduces this categorical thinking. It comes and says, no, it's not good enough that you promise that you are taking care of women. You have to give them the right to inherit. Which, as we will see, the, 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 the mind of the time, the mind of Muslims at the time resisted well why? If I'm taking care of her and I'm, you know, meeting all her needs, why does she need to share an in inheritance? If I mean even even in matters of sexual promiscuity when it came to slaves the attitude was often, well, as long as I allow my slaves to have sexual relations You know, I I have my slaves have boyfriends or girlfriends. Why do I need to give the slaves the right to be married? Why? This Quranic reform was often in Islamic history poorly implemented because. It was ahead of its time. Let me restate it. There's Quranic Islam, but there's also Imperial Islam. If you look at things like what Imperial Islam did about issues like slavery, or about women, it is not often, not just not realizing the Quranic potential, but often, but sometimes even going opposite of the Quranic potential. Learn to differentiate between imperial Islam, meaning the the, the discourses that were produced by legal specialists that were. Culturally, a part of a world power. And the divine narrative of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran. Because they they don't, sometimes there is a good match, sometimes, but quite often it's not. Don't lock the moral potential of the Quran simply in the historical practice that manifested, even even at the times of the so-called rightly guided Khulafa. Because not even Abu Bakr or Omar or Ali or Uthman have necessarily realized the Quranic potential. I'll even... And, but, and I, this is something that people can disagree with, with me all they want. I mean, we can debate this or talk about it later. The Prophet followed Allah's, Prophet re- narrated Allah's revelation. The Prophet was a historically embedded figure as a human being. Did the Prophet himself fully realize the Quranic potential as a human being? My answer to that, what, what proof do you have of that? So when someone comes to tell me that the Prophet owned slaves, to me, even if true, so what? That doesn't prevent me from saying slavery is inconsistent with the morality of the Quran. Because the, the, the Prophet communicated the Wahi. Didn't intervene in the communication of the Wahi at all. But the way that the Prophet interacted with the Wahi, did, did the Prophet necessarily have full consciousness of the moral potential of the Wahi? What proof do you have of that? This doesn't take away anything. The Prophet was as perfect a human being as a human being could be at that time. Underscore, at that time. The moral potential that could be fulfilled at that historical period was embodied in the Prophet, Wasallam if the prophet lived in our day and age, I am absolutely sure he would embody the moral potential of this day and age. And it would look very different than the moral potential of 1,400 years ago. That is the problem with a lot of the segmented myopic thinking of so many Muslims that do not bother understanding the beauty of the Prophet and that often the Prophet himself would be frustrated by the limits of his age. But that's another very big topic, which would, would, would embrace a position, but ultimately the embracing of a position evidenced a commitment to a trajectory rather than a fulfillment of a project. And you'll see, I'll give you examples of Surat Nisa. Of this because then this becomes very important. So anyway, so we see Surat Nisa comes in and it tackles a variety of social practices that are unjust. And it comes and it says, here's the path that Allah wants to put you on. And the path when it comes to orphans, when it comes to widows, when it comes to women in general, when it comes to men that are disempowered because of physical limitations, health limitations, sometimes other limitations, it, as we will see, it even comes and it forbids things like the castration of men, which was practiced with some slaves. So you, you, you see a clear pattern and practice of saying... And then, it, as we will see, it comes and explicitly deals with the issue of istad'af or the issue of disempowerment. Okay. So now, let's go to... And, of course we left off at 29 where Surat Nisa comes and says all form of financial compulsion and oppression and exploitation it is not just usury this is verse 29 usury had been dealt with but there still remained people who would take advantage of other people and say well it's consensual trade and Surat al Nisa, as we talked about last Halakha, comes in and says, No. This disempowering people, exploiting people under the guise of consensual trade is still wrong. And as we saw in 30, wa wa nara. this is quite scary. Those who exploit others, even if they tell themselves, Well, I've done it consensually. If what you've done is ultimately a form of injustice and aggression, <inaudible> what you will, you, you, your deserve will be hellfire. Muslims, again, because they they ignore the moral potential of the Qur'an, Allah is speaking clearly to us, and he says you're not free to make profits as you you wish. When you make a profit, you you are obligated by your maker to pose the question, is this fair to all parties concerned? If you are treating the party you are trading with unfairly, if you are taking advantage of them, then don't be happy because what you've earned is hellfire. Don't delude yourself and say, well, my money is halal. Ask yourself, has imperial Islam lived up to this potential? Do we, are Muslims raised with the consciousness that you can't take, if even a child, you can't, can't take advantage of a fellow human being, even in your games, even in your dealings as a child. You, you are morally, Islamically obligated to always think of justice. Even when you can get away with more, you can make far greater surplus than you do than you can if you are being fair. It's a moral revolution. There's no book like the Quran. It's a moral revolution. And the the narratives in the Musannafat, where merchants who were God fearing, of course, there were many merchants that would be encompassed by, by the Quranic description of munafiqoon, of hypocrites, who didn't care. But there were merchants that would come to the Prophet <laughs> and say, You know, after Surah Al Nisa, I am worried. I am making this much money. And the, the advice the Prophet would, would tell them is safety is in disclosure. Go tell the other party that you know this thing that I bought from you, you've undervalued it. There's several narratives like that, where the Prophet ﷺ says, go tell the other party that you've actually undervalued what you're selling me. That's what in real shakir is. That's what a person of true taqwa would be. It's very different from the type of you know, all is fair you just if you can make a killing, make a killing. That's, a Muslim lives a fully morally conscientious life. Every moment of their existence, nothing is just. Oh well, this is my good fortune. Oh well, you know, I can get away with this. That that is the antithesis of what a Muslim is. Okay. And interestingly, thirty one. 31 which tells you that well you know if as long as you avoid the oh who does not hear oh. as long as you avoid the Quebec now what is fascinating is that most most jurists, have agreed that unfair profits is a kabira, is not a minor sin, is a kabira. But again, we don't raise our children that way. That if you take advantage of the other, even if the other consents, out of ignorance, out of misinformation, out of need, out of... And so, the the fact that 31 follows 30 and 29, most people read verse 31 as sort of a comfort. Well, you know, as long as I avoid the major sins. But the question is, what are the major sins? Because ghaiba could rise to the level of a major sin. Taking advantage of the other could be a major sin. Okay. Now look at 32. وَلَا تَتَمَنَّوا مَا فَضَّلَ اللَّهُ بِهِ بَعْضُكُمْ عَلَىٰ بَعْضٍ لِلْرِجَالِ نَصِيبٌ مِّن مَّكْتَسَبُوا وَلِلْنِّسَاءِ نَصِيبٌ مِّن اللَّهَ There are, there, this is, um, let's see how Muhammad S. translates the verse, 32. Okay. Hence, do not covet the boundaries which God has bestowed more abundantly on some of you than others. Men shall have a benefit from what they earn, and women shall have a benefit from what they earn Ask therefore God to, to give out ask therefore God to give you out of God's bounty. Behold, God has indeed full knowledge of everything. Uh, Thirty-three is is related to thirty-two, so might as well just so and unto everyone we have appointed heirs to what he may leave behind, or what a person may leave behind. Parents and near kinsfolk, and to those to whom we have pledged your trust, give them therefore their share. Behold, God is indeed a witness unto everything. So, in 32, which tells you, "Wa l-kullin jaanna maula mima tarak al-walidani wal-akrabun, wa al-ladhin aqd aqdat aymanukum, faatuhum nasihabum." Inna Allahi kana 'ala kulli shayin shahida. Thirty-one poses a very interesting um, question of interpretation. And I'll I'll let me I'll walk you through it. So we have a number of narratives that are very similar to the Umm Salama narrative about verse. 32. And according to this Um Salama narrative, is that Um Salama comes to the Prophet, ﷺ and says, Men take part in war, and we women don't. And, and as, as a result, they have the opportunity to, to be martyred, and we don't. We women don't. And yet, we have half of the inheritance. So in this narrative, Um Salama is complaining about the fact that men have an opportunity to gain martyrhood in battle, women don't, and yet, in addition to this opportunity, they also get more of a greater share of the inheritance or double the share of inheritance. And then, this is reported as the reason for the revelation of, of, thirty-two. D- don't covet. So, it, in other words, like thirty-two is coming and saying, to each of you, God has made a share. Don't 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 covet each other's shares. Don't look at what the other person has. So keep this in mind. So you have the 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 first four set of narratives. All having that same theme is that the reason that 32 is revealed is because a woman, most often it's reported that it's Um Salama, who is complaining about the, the fact that women inherit half of what men inherit. And so you can call it, let's just call it for convenience sake, the pro-feminist narrative. Okay, so Um Salama is acting like a feminist. She's, she's saying, How, what, you know, about that. So, and God responds to this by saying, Well, you know, quit that. Stop, you know, stop wanting what, what others have. The second set of reports. Which gives us a very different moral project. So, in the fair, the pro feminist report, or the moral project is is what is to tell the the, the spokesman for women, whether it's Um Salama or some other figure. It, you know, be happy with what God gave you. The other set of narratives give us a very different project. And the key to the other set of narratives is verse 33. The other set of narratives say that 32 can only be understood as part of verse 33. How so? that Allah is saying, we, I, God has decreed that a share for what parents or relatives have left. Now, there are, there is a group of people that you've made commitments to. There are a group of people that you've made pledges to. Let's see how Muhammad, uh, yeah, so uh, those to whom you have pledged your troth. Muhammad Asad translates it, those for whom you have pledged your troth. You, those you've pledged your troth, meaning. I've made a promise to take care of you. As to those, they must be given their share. And when it says, "Inna Allaha ala kulli shayin shahida," that Allah you know, witnesses all. You can't cheat Allah. So, what is it talking about then? Okay. Who are those that you have pledged your troth? What 32 what well, sorry what 33 is saying is that there are those that have a share in inheritance but there are those that don't get a share in inheritance but are still your financial responsibility who are these people? Well, a clear example would be someone that you say to, you know, in your lifetime, you know, I've promised, if you go to school, as lo- you know, I promise to pay your school fees. And then you die. And then the people who come and inherit say, We're not going to honor this promise. But wait, you know, I was counting on this. Well, too bad. He's dead. You don't get a share of inheritance and we're not going to honor it. So that would be a clear example. But here is the truly radical thing. It's not limited just to people that you've promised in this way you know, go ahead, invest in this project, I've got your back. But then you die. That's not a part of the inheritance. But it's a pledge. People relied on this pledge. But remember the ayah that Aisha told us was ignored by Muslims? That those who are present at the time of the inheritance, who don't get a share but are part of the household. They, they must be given a share. Because of the resistance to this ayah, people didn't want, who are these people? They are the people who live in your household, serve in your household, possibly even grow up in your household. But then they don't get a share of inheritance. Because of the resistance to the earlier ayah, Allah came back and again said, you can't forget these people. They don't get a share of inheritance, but they must be given a share. Allah doesn't specify the share. Because how much? Well, it depends. It depends on how rich you are. But what Allah is is underscoring is that those people who have lived and served in your household, or, you know, you've raised your niece, or you've raised your nephew, or, you know, they don't get, perhaps they don't get an inheritance share, but you can't ignore their needs. Fledged your thought, your trust, it is again immoral obligation. So how does this then affect the understanding of thirty-two? Well, in this group of narratives, it is saying Allah knows that you are going to say, why should they get a share? They're not blood. Well, when Allah says don't don't begrudge what Allah tells you to give others, it is not talking about putting women in their place. It is talking about your resistance or the resistance of the people who are are going to inherit you, the family members, of giving a poor servant boy or a poor servant girl who've lived with you for 20 years a part of the inheritance. Because Allah knows that you're going to say, well, why? You know, their employment has ended. The The person they used to serve is, has, is dead now. I, for instance, I'll give you like a, a clear... I, I know if an Egyptian family... There's an orphan that was it wasn't formally adopted in meaning that but has been living with this family, and the patriarch, the father in this family, has it has has paid took the orphan in. The orphan is living in the household. The orphan is treated like one of the grandchildren. This orphan girl, you know, eats with them, drinks with them, lives with them. The grandfather, the the father of the family enrolled the orphan in private school like the other children and so on. But then when that father died, those who inherited said, we don't want to continue paying the, the private school fees you are not formally a part of our family, uh, go get a job and, and you know, it, your, your role ended. When I recited to them this verse, subhanAllah, there was only one sheikh that I, I've told them to talk to, who told them yes, this is precisely what the ayah is talking about. You you can't simply take your shares of the inheritance and tell this poor orphan girl, okay, hard luck, goodbye. But the sad thing is that it was so alien to them because that's not the way they were raised. What they the, what when I they first heard this ayah from me, the the immediate reaction of the oldest kid who had somewhat of a religious education, not much but somewhat, is, oh no, what are you talking about? This is talking about women don't, don't begrudge the fact that men inherit more than you in some situations and of course I'm not going to sit there and give him a lecture and say, well this is the first school and there's the other school you know, but I said well, talk to Sheikh such and such you'll he'll he'll support what I said I mean, but the sad reality is, you know, as far as I know, they didn't give that poor girl money. And they, she did have to drop out of private school. I mean, anyway, it's. But this is precisely the, the immoral situation that the, that the Quran was confronting. I have to tell you that there's another there are a third set of narratives that tell you that what this area is talking about is that which is not inconsistent with the second school, but it's a further amendment to the second school, if you will. That initially when the the Muhajirun, the migrants from Mecca arrived in Ansar the Prophet والسلام, والأنصار, that the Prophet said, okay, you know, coupled families together as brethren and sisters. And initially the pledge between these families, the a family of migrants with a family of Medinians who took care of the migrants is that they inherit from each other. Then Allah came and said, no, inheritance must be according to blood, not according to the mu'akha, not according to that uh, bond, covenantal bond between, between you. And that third school said, well, what this ayah is talking about is that if you've made a pledge, that pledge ought to be honored between the Ansar and the Muhajirun. There are a lot of problems with, this, with, the, with the third school, and that's why I, I put it as a, just so you, you know, because you, you could run into someone who says, oh no, you know, this has to do with the Muhajirun Ansar. It has nothing to do with people that grow up in your household or what, whatnot. And of course, that's just out of ignorance. But so you you know about it, but it is there are a lot of issues about why this ayah doesn't seem to fit the Muhajirun al Ansar issue. But notice here that you have the same Quranic narrative, and there, there were the historical evidence has reports that tell us that this ayah was a a way to tell women quit, to control or to mitigate the ambitions of women. This is the Um Salama report. Or other narratives that come and say, no, it's not about mitigating the ambitions of women. It is about the rights of people who are disempowered because they are disinherited but they rely on the of, on a moral pledge anyway. You come and you look at the chain of transmissions and you have a very hard time deciding which is has the stronger chain of transmission. There are ISNADs, chain of transmission, that support the control Women narrative and those who they empower the disinherited narrative in terms of the isnads, it, 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 you could go either way. In my approach, when I look about at the um salama narratives. It strikes me as historically suspicious. Why is it historically suspicious? One, because of what I know about the history of patriarchy. Is that men often were unhappy with the way that the Quran empowered women. And that there, were, there was a very active movement in inventing traditions that would try to neutralize what the Quran was doing when it came to women. And how do I know that this was, there was a very active tradition? Is because a lot of these traditions, the controlled your women traditions, are reported in the Musannafat of Ibn Abi Shaiba and Abdul Razzaq. As initially traditions that are munkata and munkata that they that they are reported as the opinion of a companion of the prophet or a successor of the prophet a tra, a, 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 not as something that happened with the prophet or that the prophet said, but then. It is reported in the books of hadith as imarfuah that suddenly it's not it's that that what was initially is two centuries ago or a cent- century ago was reported as the opinion of a successor or a companion is now being reported as something that happened with the prophet and his wives. To me that is very suspicious. And that, especially what I know about the politics, gender politics of the time, and that the other thing that is suspicious, look at the report that men have an opportunity to be martyred. Well, notice here the the brilliance of this report of flipping things on its head, right? The reason women in pre-islamic arabia did not inherit is because they didn't take part in war but this report sort of flips the argument on its head it's now saying well if men have the opportunity to be martyred it's as if it's saying well if if inheriting our share as women, half of what men would inherit would be okay if we had an opportunity to take part in war and be martyred at war. Which is completely flipping the historical logic on its head. Is this clear? Are you guys following? Okay. It's very fascinating, right? It's like, Wow, so someone here or some dynamic went into saying, "Well, look, it's actually taking part of war is is something that it doesn't seem wrong at all to disinherit women because they don't take part in war." Um, it it is because Allah comes and says. Well, yeah, men have an opportunity today to go to war, which is actually a good thing, and be martyred, which is actually a good thing, and inherit more than you do, and be happy with your share. Don't protest. That's the the net of it. And of course, the 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 women, uh, you know, um, mind your status type narrative would then deconstruct the entitlement of dependents who are disinherited. Or, not disinherited, but don't have a share in the inheritance. In other words, if you accept the Um Salama reports, then those people who lived in your household, relied on, with dependents in every way, don't have a share. Don't get anything. And which undermines the 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 social project of Surah Al-Nisa. Because we we see that there were many situations where there's the the, the that would grow up, they might have a mother and father, but they're extremely poor and they lived serving like like Anas ibn Malik, you know, who was a a a, a independent of the Prophet, lived serving the Prophet until the Prophet died. The Prophet didn't leave anything behind. But this would be exactly the type of person who the Quran is saying to those who have a blood share in inheritance, you have a moral obligation, an Islamic obligation, to take care of that dependent. Okay. Now, and there there's actually a uh, 33 um oh yeah i forgot uh, one one more thing about 33 before i move on um there's another pledge other than dependence that i forgot about that um in pre-islamic practice what sometimes people would do is they would make a sort of an alliance families would become allied to other families this is you know you didn't have a police force you didn't have an army you didn't have a strong state and so what you do is you say you you say to to uh, uh, another family let's make an alliance I will come to your defense I will protect you as long as you protect me so there's a, an alliance of mutual protection mutual defense between these families and part of that alliance would that they would make an agreement that I give you a share of my inheritance and you give me a share of your inheritance these types of alliances were were common I mean, they're, they're, and in part, 33 comes and says these pledges are to be honored. They're like contracts or like debts. To be honored, there is a juristic debate, long juristic debate as to whether they are honored pre-division of inheritance or after the division of inheritance, but we don't need to get into that. Okay. Then we get to thirty-four, the very famous ayah in Surah Al-Nisa, made famous in. in Big measure by the Islamophobes. A regal Kawamuna alanisa bima fadalallahu bada hum alabad, wabima and fakum in amwalihim. Fasalihatu kaunitat, half is autunil gay bima hafayallah. Well, let it hafuna nushuzahum faizum, wazuru hunna filmadoja, wadrubu hun, fain otanakum fela taboo alayhin. فلا تبغوا عليهن سبيلا ان الله كان عليا كبيرا and then 35 وان خفتم شقاق بينه... بينهما فبعثوا حكما من اهله وحكما من اهلها إن يُرِيدَ إِصْلَاحَ يوفق الله بينهما ان الله كان عليما خبيرا so let's see how translates Men shall take care of women with the bounties which God has bestowed more abundantly on the former than on the latter, and with what they may spend out of their possessions. And the righteous women are truly devout ones who guard the intimacy which God has ordained to be guarded. And for those women whose ill will This is Muhammad Asad's translation. Whose ill will you have reason to fear, admonish them first, then leave them alone in bed, then beat them. And if thereupon they pay you heed, do not seek to harm them. Behold, God is indeed the Most High Great. 35. And if you have reason to fear that a breach might occur between a married couple appoint an arbiter from among his people and an arbiter from among her people. If they both want to set things aright, God may bring about their reconciliation. Behold, God is indeed all-knowing and aware. So you have a number of issues that come up with verse 34. The first is actually much easier than a lot of people seem to think. Arajanu what is, what rajalu is noteworthy about this is a qiyama, which comes from the word qa'im. Doesn't mean they control women. Doesn't mean they have authority over women. It doesn't mean they're entitled to obedience. The only thing it means is that they are caretakers of women, and they are caretakers. And the fact that the Quran then conditions it with a reason why: why are they caretakers? If you ask, if you say, "I," meaning I take care of this matter. If you say ana qa'imun ala rahatik, I serve your comfort. The idea of qiwama is the idea of taking care of something. But why? It is bima anfaqoo, bima faddlallahu ba'dahum ala ba'd, awalan, by the, the the physical attributes that were given. So the reason that men are charged with protecting, making sure that women at that time are not abducted, are not sexually assaulted, are not sexually harassed, is because men, it's a male-dominated society in which men have physical strength. So you have an obligation to make sure that your sister is not sexually harassed, that your wife is not sexually harassed, that your mother is not sexually harassed, in in a society in which there is no police, no army, in which, you know, every day the desert is open space, there is, it, it is clear that men have an obligation. You cannot ever shrug that obligation. If Your sister, your mother, your wife needs your help. Your niece, your nephew, your neighbor needs your help for protection. You have to protect. It is not as patriarchy has done and took kuwama, as you see in a lot of books that then tell you, oh, what it means is the the, uh, right to be obeyed. Nothing in Qawama implies that. And what is truly remarkable about the Qur'anic text is that it comes and says, "Bima Allah, So if physical strength is not there, then the logic of Qawama doesn't hold. And بِمَا أَنفَقُوا And because men had the presumptive financial obligation. So... What me, that means, if my wife has the health and I don't, and my wife has the earning potential and I don't, in my case, my wife is a Qayyim on me, for me. She is my caretaker. It's not the opposite. Again, history. What the Islamophobes will always ignore is that they translated what the bible says about what women owe their husbands they translated it and retranslated it and retranslated it and retranslated it to fudge the fact that the bible in the original Greek and Latin obligates a woman to be towards her husband like a slave is towards his master. I hope I marked it. I I didn't sorry, oh man I didn't mark it but I in one of the khutbahs I actually read from the bible the the passage in which Paul the famous Paul says to women you women towards your husbands you have to be you, you have to be silent in the presence of men and don't open your mouth and women are vis-a-vis their husbands like slaves towards their masters and and so on, and the way even the King James version of the Bible, which still maintains some fidelity, or far greater fidelity to the original, than all the uh, the, the the modern Protestant translations, but if you just go and you get copies of the Bible published. And from King James to the 19 published in the 1930s to the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and track the, the way that simple passage has been translated and retranslated and retranslated, as with every translation, you can tell the, the, the apologetics in changing the wording. So that instead of obey your husbands, it becomes love your husbands. You have an obligation to love your husbands the way that you love Jesus and so on. But the Islamophobes also ignore, and for some reason I, I marked this, but I didn't mark the, the other one. I get, I I read the, a passage in a khutbah, and maybe I was thinking, well, I've talked about it in a khutbah, so what's the point? But Notice... Like in Deuteronomy, it says, When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them in your hands, meaning you defeat your enemies, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and you are attracted to her, you may take her. In this modern translation of the Bible, the Study Bible by the New International Version, it says, and you are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her unto your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she is wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned his father, her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. What's fascinating about all the modern, because I've checked every contemporary, this is published in the 2000s, every two contemporary translation of this passage is that they all are become unified and although they couldn't change you have dishonored her they became unified in saying if you if you take a woman as a captive you like her beauty beauty then marry her well the original latin doesn't say marry her marry her the original latin says take her period and the reason in all the pre in all the pre nineteen sixty, biblical commentaries, they they say the reason it says dishonored her is because you've raped her. You allow her one month to mourn the killing of her mother and father because, on, according to Deuteronomy, you must kill anyone that you don't keep as a captive, and you don't you should not keep it as a captive except those that you can make use of sexually or for labor so you allow her a month to mourn her mother and father and then you force her sexually my point is 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 you know the the most crazy discourse in our modern age is the phenomena of islamophobia Because every Islamophobe lives in a complete act of dishonesty about self. Anything they point at when it comes to Islam and accuse Islam of, they have within their tradition tenfold, if not more. Not a single issue. Okay. So... What is actually remarkable? The biblical narrative is is not remarkable. It, 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 religious texts for centuries, up till the modern age, have always told women: your role is to serve men and obey men. That that is not at all remarkable. What is actually remarkable about the Quranic text? is that there is no hint in the Qur'anic text about women obey your men. And we'll come to fa'in in a second. That, that's one. Second, is that qawamah is conditioned on ability. So there is whoever has the health and whoever has the wealth has the obligation of qawama Even pre-modern jurists, when they talked about the example of a husband who is blind marrying a wealthy woman, even medieval jurists had to concede that in this case, the qawama belongs to the woman. Because the husband suffers a physical handicap and incapacity and is not the owner of wealth. But Koama didn't really matter in this situation, and this is where, where you know they say, yes, she has Kuama, but he, she doesn't have the right to obedience. You know, well, you've got to be consistent. Either qawama means obedience or it doesn't mean obedience. You can't switch it, whether it's with men or women. But qawama in it, linguistically, has nothing to do with obedience. It simply has an obligation of caretaking. Okay. Now, the second thing. So, notice here. Fassalihat, qanitat, (laughs) حافظات للغيب بما so moral women are not women who are accountable to men because this was a revolution in itself are women who are accountable to God. Now in books of patriarchal, misogynistic books of jurisprudence, of course, Imperial Islam, you know, they'll say things like, Well, what it's talking about is that if the man is absent from the home, you don't let anyone into his house, you don't spend his money, you don't, you know, misuse any of his property. That's all that's all interpretive material that, that that is not the the, the quranic islam bima hafiz allah the language is very clear it is these women are moral not because they hold themselves accountable to men husband or father or whatever but because they hold themselves accountable to allah Now, then we come. Then we come to the issue of nushuz. And if you have a woman who is in this category, who is in ashes, then it talks about three things, right? Advise them. And separate from their marital bed and beat them. Some modern Quranic commentators uncomfortable with the idea of beat them said well Fadribuhun in Arabic you say darabtu fit tariq darabtu tariq means I started traversing the road or I've started traveling on the road. Or uh, uh, even uh, you say the ox, the ox, uh, um, uh, the ox um, were, you know, like had intercourse with, uh, with the cow. So here, the word daraba means to to have sex or not sex, but you know to to impregnate, um, and or daraba means to travel on the road. And so, some Quranic commentators said, like someone I often don't agree with, like Shahrur, who said, "Well, you know what it's really saying is, advise them, stay away from their marital beds." Or, if you think that this would work, resume marital relations with them. And so they understood Fadribuhun not to mean so hit them, but means copulate with them, come together with them. Incidentally, before I forget, there is a very good book that was published The entire book is about this verse and it's a virtually unknown book but the author sent it to me and I read it and I was very impressed. Uh, The book is called The Most Controversial Quranic Verse. Why 434 Does Not Promote Violence Against Women by John Andrew Morrow. This is the book by John Andrew, Andrew Morrow. it it, it's a very thorough study on the verse. Um, uh, The other book that also appeared, I actually wrote the preface to this book, or the foreword to this book, but it's a very good book, and it uh, it does a very good job with uh, this verse is um, by Lina Al-Ali. The book is called No Truth Without Beauty, God, the Quran, and Women's Rights. It's uh, She's a lawyer, but a very impressive piece of work. And uh, also the, her treatment of this verse. Then uh, Rami sent me uh, an article that was by... Um, apparently a young scholar who published an an article in an academic journal um, which argues something similar to what I've argued years ago in my book, The Search for Beauty in Islam. First, before I tell you what this fellow argues and what I argue and what I believe, is going on with this verse. Let me tell you why it was taken to mean if you, are, you have a woman who is a ashes, and there's a question of what nashes means, then advise her, you know, punish her by not sleeping with her or hit her. Most Quranic interpreters said what this means is if your wife in ashes is a disobedient wife and could be even a disobedient daughter, could it be a disobedient mother? The vast majority said no, it's only a disobedient wife or a disobedient daughter. But even if you have kuama with your mother, in other words, you are taking care financially of your mother, that your mother can't be in ashes vis-a-vis you. I'm talking about traditional scholars, the, the, the majority of traditional scholars. And they said, well, you know, if your wife is disobedient, refuses to obey you on matter where you have a right to be obeyed, and of course they go into all the things that a husband has a right to be obeyed about, which includes things like uh, telling her, I don't want X or Y person to come into my home. Or telling her, I don't want you to go out or, or leave the house. And and they the, consider all this stuff a matter of the rights of the husband. And that if she is disobedient, is rebellious, then first, and they they took this as a matter of gradations. so first you advise her, then you escalate by um, not sleeping with her, and then escalate by hitting her. But, they ran into an interpretive dynamic with the early traditions generated about verse 34 and what are the some of these early interpretive traditions or early traditions the most famous of which of which Is the so-called tradition of Saad bin Rabia or Saad bin Al-Rabia that Saad bin Al-Rabia, his wife, disobeyed him. His wife, um, her name was um, her name was Habiba, Habiba bin Zayd so Habiba bin Zaid disobeyed him about something and um, ha, the, so he he slapped her. He slapped her. It, it, the, the tradition says Falata maha. means he slapped her on the face. So uh, according to this tradition she goes and she complains to the Prophet والسلام, And the Prophet says minhu," minhu" means slap him back the way he same way he slapped you slap him. Then this verse was revealed, and the prophet says he calls her back and he says, "No, you can't slap him back because." I wanted something and Allah wanted something else. What is the import of this tradition? Okay, a wife complains to the Prophet that she was slapped by her husband. The Prophet tells her to slap him back. Then there is a revelation. Then the Prophet says, no, you can't slap him back. The implication is that God came and legitimated what Saad would bin Arabi'ah did. That God came and said, And if it is true that this verse was revealed because of this incident, then, then slapping, then, then, then effectively she has no recourse. She has no legal cause against him. No legal complaint. Because, so that is legitimating the act of violence committed by Saad in Arabia, Because the Prophet said, I wanted something, but God wanted something else. There is a further narrative here. And that is a narrative that When verse 34 was revealed, a month later, up to 60 women came and complained to the Prophet that after the revelation of verse 34 that their husbands beat them. And upon which the Prophet ﷺ makes a statement that becomes very famous in the Islamic tradition. Where he says, The worst of you are those who beat your women. That, despite this verse, the worst of you are those who beat your women. And then, Through a long set of, I mean, if we go into all the evidence, I would end up, would end up talking about the equivalent of the size of this book. That then jurists looking at the various pieces of evidence said, well, so yes. It, the The solution for a disobedient woman is hitting, but hitting is the, not the first choice. It is always the last choice. And when you hit, it cannot be something that causes humiliation, insult, or pain. And the famous legal opinion that m- many Muslims, I'm sure, heard of, that you hit her with a miswak. miswak is like that little twig that you clean your teeth with. And that uh, you strike her with it. Now, obviously, if you strike someone with a miswork, it, it's weird. I mean, because it, it, it's like you're, you're hitting someone with a, with, I don't know, it's, it's not even a ruler. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't, I don't know if, if it would be an insult or it would be sort of comical. Right? You know, you're angry and you're going around with this little thing trying to hit someone with it. And you can't strike the face and so on. But you notice, well, if you take this entire interpretive tradition, the original tradition, the tradition of Saad bin al he slapped his wife. And the answer of the Prophet reportedly is very interesting and historically very curious. Slap him back. Now, I've spent so much time researching this. And for the advice would be to slap him back. So in other words, he hit you, so hit him back. Is as weird sounding back then as it sounds now. Imagine if someone comes and says, you know, my husband abuses me. And I say, oh, yeah, every time he punches you, just punch him back. It, it, now, this is 1,400 years ago. It was far weirder then. And the fact that and it's a slap, so she would slap him in the face. And you can, you can if, if, a, if a woman goes and slaps the man in the face, can you imagine how the escalation of violence that would break out? But that is not the point of this tradition. The point of this tradition is to come and say, I wanted something, but God wanted something else. Implying that God wants husband to have the right to beat their women. And the tradition that 60 women comes and complains to the prophet that since verse 34, they've now been their husbands are hitting them. To make a long story short, both of these narratives are highly suspect. Highly suspect, why? Because in the chains of transmission, there are people that say they heard from people, but they existed in different generations so it could they couldn't this person couldn't have heard from that person. Both of these narratives occur originally in a variety of forms as opinions of successors of the prophet and especially the the report about sixty women came to complain to the to the prophet. we have narratives that says. No reliable authority has confirmed the occurrence of this incident. So you, you spend an enormous amount of time trying to vet all these, all these traditions about spousal violence, and you find that none of it stands to scrutiny. But then you come to the issue of Nushuz itself. The issue of Nushuz in Arabia at that time didn't mean A disobedience, nushuz, in in ling- clear linguistic usage, referred to sexual improprieties. So keep that. Just hold on to this point because there are some other points. The other thing, notice. The form is it is speaking collectively. It is speaking to a collectivity. It is speaking to society at large. Precisely the same form when it was talking about. Four witnesses, and imprisoning women who commit sexual improprieties, putting them under house arrest until they repent, and in the opinion of some jurists, or until they marry, which is a debated issue. Plus, so it is the the same form where it's talking to society at large what is the, the i blanked out for a for a second the, an, another point that i had okay no, oh yeah, and then notice in verse 35 it says if there is no shoes, then you do x, y, and z. But 35 it says and if there is shikak what do you do if there is shikak? You bring an arbitrator from each of the families to solve the problem. The way that patriarchal institutions interpreted 34 would make no sense, because how can I have no shoes, and after I went as far as beating my spouse, then the Quran comes and says, well, if there's shiqaq, and shiqaq means disagreement, then solve it through arbitration. How can you have arbitration? Which is worse, nushuz or shiqaq? Well, everyone linguistically would say what is worse is nushuz. So how can it say... Well, go to arbitration, but after what is much worse than shikak has happened. You, you've escalated things to the point of beating. Who is going to be in the mood to arbitrate anything if things escalated to a, a deterioration in marital relations to the point of hitting. It doesn't drive. It doesn't work. So you go back and you look into historical reports and what the article that Rami sent me and the book by John Andrew Morrow come to and what I've come to in my, uh, in the search for beauty in Islam is nushuz meant what it meant in Arabic usage at the time. Nushuz doesn't mean rebellion or disagreement. It means an accusation of sexual imp- impropriety, especially, in particular, that it was very common at that time among Arabs that when men would go on long journeys to trade or on military campaigns, it was common practice for wives to take lovers. And men coming back from these long journeys would often suspect their wives, of having taken a lover. And that type of accusation was an accusation of neshuz. That's what was called neshuz in Arabic. But there are no witnesses. And you are often talking about rumors. You come back and you hear rumors that your wife had had a boyfriend or has taken a lover. The the, 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 the this conduct could continue after the return of the husband or not. It didn't really make a difference in, in the accusation of the shoes. And what would have often happened is that in pre-Islamic Arabia is once the husband becomes convinced that his wife is a ashes, meaning she has a boyfriend or a lover, what they would often do is lock up the wife at home, imprison the wife at home if it doesn't deteriorate to an honor killing, which it, we have which did happen some you know but would not further ado, they would simply imprison the wife at home for life. The difference between this and the accusation of sexual impropri- impropriety is that you're not talking about an incident where you say, My wife committed adultery on this date and this time. You are talking about an accusation that a suspicion that you have, that your wife is having a love affair or had a love affair, but you don't have dates, you don't have times. This is the the dynamic of Nishus in pre-Islamic Arabia. The Quran comes and says it, it abolishes the discretion of the husband to simply at will, based on their suspicion or unsubstantiated claims to lock up the wife. And it says, if you have this, an, a, this accusation, there, there has to be a judicial process. In other words, as a community, so, the, what it's talking about when it says, It is not talking about what recourse is available to the husband. It is talking about what recourse is available to the community. You bring forth the evidence, and depending on the case at hand and the amount of evidence available, your options are simply warning the wife if if the or ordering a separation or ordering an actual physical punishment remember that as we encountered earlier the Qur'an insists that punishment must not just cover women, as was the practice of pre-Islamic Arabia. It was always, when it comes to sexual improprieties, the only punished women, not the men. But to it includes the imperative of punishment. But here, in this situation, it is talking about a specific social problem, the problem of accusations of nushuz that occurred as people would come back from trade and come back from military campaigns and would, and it, it basically takes the power away from the husband and places it in, in society. The article that Rami sent me reported an incident in which a complaint is in fact brought to Omar when he was Khalifa, of a wife who's in ashes because she was accused by her husband of having an affair. And Omar, I forgot now, because I actually looked up the report, and Omar orders, I, I, I forgot now, a, a separation or something like that. Basically, he takes a judicial procedure. The article argues that the the punishments are supposed to be in 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 stages. So stage number one is warning, stage number two is separation uh between the and then stage number three is beating. So it's like a repeat offender situation. The article argues that what it what this verse was saying, it's like if you have a repeat offender, so the first response to the offense is a warning, second to response is separation But if the conduct continues, then you might actually impose a physical punishment. That makes a lot of sense, especially that that's the procedure in Jewish law. In Jewish law, they have a very similar procedure, where you have escalating punishments. But the historical evidence for that, I'm, I'm not sure. I could be persuaded otherwise, but I'm not knowing what I've encountered in my own research, I'm not sure. Um, The historical evidence at least convinces me that it was, rather than talking about repeat offenders, it was talking about severity of cases. And that while earlier in Surah al-Nisa, it is saying You can't accuse your your wife of sexual misconduct on a specific incident or a specific time without bringing four witnesses. Here, the Neshul situation is a situation where you have the husband comes and says, I keep hearing rumors that my wife has a lover. And, well, if it's just rumors, then a, a warning is given. If it's, there's actual more evidence, like, you know, servants in the house that come and say, yeah, you know, she used to meet this guy. Maybe you go to a warning. If it's even a more severe case, then maybe you actually order a physical punishment. But the net result of that was taking away the power of enforcement from the husband. To an actual judicial process. And then 35, 35 is talking about a case of disagreement, an actual marital dispute. Not accusations of having a lover, not accusations of adultery, but a marital dispute. And it's, you know, people who are fighting. And in that case, that's not in Shuz, that's Shikak. And it's saying when you have things to have deteriorated to the point of Shikak, bring arbiters. That is revolutionary. And the reaction of men at the time to the idea of, oh my God, so... I have to arbitrate disputes between me and my wife. So it's not just that I'm the man, so I'm right. So now she has the right to actually make her case and complain. And the husband responding to them, well, that's what I do with my wives. If we can't solve something, we bring in an arbiter. It was clear that the, at the time of the Prophet, wasalam, Men had their, her- their heads twirling because of Surat al-Nisa. It was like getting clobbered in the face. For their time, it- what the heck is going on? Our whole world is being turned upside down. Orphans, it's servants, Dependents, women, they all have rights. And that is why the reaction to Surah Al-Nisa was often described. There, 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 there are so many narratives that say, "Ma أُنذِلَ alaina, أَثْقَلُوا in Surah nisa Nothing was revealed to the Prophet that was heavier upon us than this Surah. But imperial Islam didn't live up to this Qur'anic potential. Very quickly, people ignored all the traditions about what Nushuz was and turned it from accusations of marital affairs and boyfriends to, oh, you're disobedient. They lumped together 34 and 35. So Nushuz and Shikak became the same thing. They emphasized the rights of the husband to obedience and so on and so forth. Neutralizing the moral potential of the Quran. What time is it? Let's take a short short break, and then inshallah we'll continue till 9.30. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Yeah, it, it's... um Notice that... um Notice the the the, as uh, Sharif was asking uh, or making a comment in the break. uh, The inconsistency, obviously, between in if if as so many interpreters took thirty four to mean women must obey that shiqaq. Sorry, sorry, means disobedience and then in th- just one ayah later in 35 it comes and says but if there is a dispute women have the right to an arbiter. that's inconsistent you you know you can't that's inconsistent with the idea that of of an obligation to obey or a duty to obedience and that's precisely part, part of it is that the, the interpreters in the Islamic tradition, because they were so embedded in, you know, the normal institutions of patriarchy and so on, they fudged the difference between nushuz and shahak and lumped them together, um, and ended up, be, in part, because. The tradition of the Prophet himself was so hostile to the idea of uh, uh, violence, spousal violence, which he never used. um, They ended up having to resort to these sort of discourses about, well, you know, the, the beating can't be insulting, it can't. Uh, cause pain. It ca- well, if it's if it's not insulting and if it's not humiliating and it's not going to cause pain, then it becomes sort of comical. It becomes... Uh, and that's why it never worked. I mean, in practice, how many people do you think actually express disapproval by taking out a miswak and patting uh, their their wife on the shoulder with it? Uh, it, it, it is... What, what what these verses ended up being co-opted towards with something exactly the opposite of what the Quran was trying to do. And that is to take away discretionary authority from men and regulate it in a system of processes and institutions, including Arbitration in in disputes. Um, the other thing I, I forgot one thing. If you go back to verse thirty three. Um. This, again, this idea, the the idea of those that you've pledged your troth. Uh, One other thing about verse 33. Verse 33 also abolished a practice that used to exist where families would not just pledge. To support each other and inherit and and, and in, for a share of the inheritance, but they would pledge to give each other support, right or wrong. So even if they were engaged in criminal behavior or they were engaged in unjust behavior, the pledge would still hold. Um, And it is widely accepted that 33 abolished any pledges so if you if the pledge was to commit act of injustice or criminal activity it was overruled that by the terms of 33 when it says that give each its due share that this was taken to mean that if the pledge was to commit injustice then it was overruled so as they as they say as <laughs> as the the interpretation would go that that according to justice, according to truth. Okay. Uh, oh. <laughs> I forgot one other thing. What's so remarkable, this is actually an important point, It's is a good thing, alhamdulillah, that I remember that. What's so remarkable is so many Qur'anic interpretations. While they read 34 as to give discretion to the husband, to advise, then abstain from marital relations, and then to use um, uh, violence, they came and said that 35, when it says so send an arbiter for, on her behalf and an arbiter on his behalf in case of disagreement, that 35 <laughs> that 35 is actually addressed not to the couples as individuals, but is addressed to the state. So the, Go back, and so what they were saying is 34 doesn't involve the judicial process according to the traditional interpretation, but 35, where the the woman requests an arbitrator and the husband requests an arbitrator that solves the dispute, that is addressed to the state. And they pointed to evidence that that, uh, several situations where a husband and wife would go and complain to Omar ibn Khattab when he was caliph and, to, and he would appoint an arbitrator and so on and so forth. But you can't have it this way. You, you know, it, either 34, if you're going to say 35 is addressed to the state, it involves an official process, an institutional process, then you also have to concede that 34 addresses itself to an institutional process. You can't say 34 is addressed to the private discretion of husbands and then 35 is addressed to an institutional process. Uh, But again, this is just evidence of how interpretation, when it is anchored in cultural assumptions and cultural practices, can go so wrong actually completely missed the boat. Um, I mean, most of these jurors who were doing their interpretations were themselves, you know, married. And, uh, you know, I'm sure had whatever politics in their home. And like the people at the time of the Prophet they, they didn't want to involve any. They didn't want to empower their wives with the the ability to actually involve a judicial process, uh, and they much rather had nushu, would have shoes to mean disobedience rather than anything else. Okay. The interpretation that I've given to 34 and 35 is, again, very consistent with 36. And it's consistent with the entire thrust of Surat Nisa. But notice 36 comes in and it's like giving you specific legislation to deal with specific problems. But it takes you back again, as the typical of the Qur'anic style, legislation, and then it takes you back to the broader ethical, moral perspective. So it says, وَالْجَارِذِي الْجُنُوبِ والصاحب بِالْجُنُوبِ وابن السبيل وما ملكت ايمانكم ان الله لا يحب كل مخ... ان الله لا يحب من كان مختالا فخورا so, after these various engagements about dependents, about orphans about wives about, about disputes then it takes a step back and reminds you. Worship Allah. This critical issue of shirk, as we will see later on Surah Nisa again. That when you fail to respond To the problems of the disempowered. That is shirk billah. Ibadatullah wa adam al ishraq billah to worship Allah and not fall into a state of shirk is impossible, impossible if you don't have. What is the precondition for Ihsan? What is the precondition for Ihsan? Justice. Ihsan is the further step beyond justice. Without justice, i.e. empowering the disempowered, ibadatillah and, and avoiding slipping into a state of shirk is impossible. So it comes and says, it reminds you again, it says, okay, worship God meaningfully. I know you guys are going to resist implementing this program. I know you're going to have a hard time with following what it's saying. But this is not about you. This is about ibadatillah and adam shirk billah. What we were talking about earlier. If you don't use what Allah has given you for Allah's objectives, you are engaged in kufr. And you want the general moral anchor for this? Well, the general moral anchor is ihsan. Ihsan towards who? Al Walidain parents Wabi Zilkurba all relatives Waliatama orphans Walmasain and Indigents Wajari Zilkurba and neighbors who are related to you and Wajari Al Junub and neighbors who are not related to you. Bil بِالْجُنُوبِ And those who are not neighbors but part of your community. And who else? وَابْنِ sabil, And the wayfarer, what I said are refugees. The displaced the people who've lost their homes or had to move their homes, and you find them in your community in need of help. And who your right hands possess, meaning those who are dependent on you, whether they are servant status, slave status, whoever is dependent on you. وَمَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُكُمْ And so, what you owe all these people, notice how mind boggling this is. You owe your parents Ihsan in the same way that you owe Ihsan to all these other categories. So, can I be a jerk? to someone who is dependent on me, to hired help, for instance, or like a, a case that um, uh, of these, uh, an Egyptian family that was being prosecuted in, in California uh, for the way they treated a, a girl that was serving them, a servant in their, in their home, um, that they brought along from Egypt. Well, you know, this is the, the, how, how remote we are from the Qur'an. Because the Qur'an says the ihsan that you owe this dependent in your family is like the ihsan you owe your parents and you owe your relatives. But it is also like the ihsan that you owe orphans in society, you owe indigents in society, you owe neighbors in society. And then it comes and says if you are incapable of giving this ihsan to these categories of people then you are a mukhtal fakhur Then your problem is your ego. You have an ego problem. For whatever reason you can't get over yourself. For whatever reason, you think your ego takes precedence over your moral obligation towards all these categories. This is precise, precisely why... Oh, a um, couple of points, other points about 36... The Prophet والسلام, in commenting about thirty-six, because people understood that 30 that the heavy weight of what Surah Al Nisa was saying, as I noted earlier. And they come and they ask the Prophet والسلام, and the Prophet says to them As Armala Wal Understand that if you help a widow, you serve a widow, you serve the indigent, you are like a person who is engaging in jihad. You have the status of a mujahid. Mujahid, jihad is not just about going and fighting battles. It is about living a righteous moral life in society. Of course, you find a lot written about 36 because of its moral impact and its effect on. Among the, the most interesting things I've read is that the expression of Sahib bil Junub that this is now as i um, I said members of your community, but in the interpretive tradition meaning theologians and jurists said that it includes um members and it includes people that belong to your um, um uh, what is the word? Um Sana or Talu. so in other words, people who belong within your your circle of business or um, your guild. So it would include if you're a fisherman, you're the, the guild of fishermen that you deal you deal with. It would include if you're a scholar, the, the guild of scholars that you deal with. Um, so the extension of Ihsan is like circles that overlap and the other very interesting thing that I've read is that this expression, which, as I said, includes anyone who is dependent on you. In, in a considerable number of scholars said that this includes animals that rely on you for their caretaking. That what you owe these animals is not just justice, but ihsan. So why can't you mistreat your dog or your cat? Because Allah commands you not to just treat them well, but to treat them beautifully. And then notice thirty seven. A Lazina of Haluna, where Muruna Nasa Bilbuch, where Tubuna ma atahumulla bin Fobby, Wa Tedna in Cafferina as Abbot Muhina. Well, Lazina in Ficuna, Muala Umri and Nas, well, I omina Billa, well, I believe I will Shaitan, Lahu Corin and Fasa or This is thirty seven and thirty eight. Well, now thirty nine. O وماذا عليهم لو امنوا بالله واليوم الاخر وانفقوا مما رزقهم الله وكان الله بهم from 37 38 and 39 Allah takes you to the crux of the matter that The biggest challenge when it comes to Ihsan, the the further away we get from the the circle of blood. So you, you might not be stingy with your parents. You might even not be stingy with your relatives. But so many people have a problem with being, fulfilling the state of Ihsan when it comes to spending financially, not just when it comes to blood relatives, but when it comes to the categories of the orphans, the indigents, the wayfarer, the the refugee, when it comes to neighbors, members of a guild, members of a neighborhood, In other words, the further away you get within the circles, the more stingy people people become with their money. It is one thing to see your money going to your parents, going to your siblings, but it is quite another to see your money going to simply neighbors and members of the community. And Allah's response to this, if only Muslims would listen, is astounding. But in my opinion, it created the Muslim civilization. Is that it comes and it says, okay, listen. Allah is very aware that there are many of you that their response to this revelation, as was in fact the case, is what is this? Muhammad keeps demanding our money, but now Muhammad is obligating us to give even people who are not related to us in blood. And the response is people who are stingy and who goes or go around advising people to be stingy. What they have to look forward to is azab and muhina, degrading punishment. But not only that, Allah knows that there are among you those who do spend their money, but they're not spending their money because they want ihsan. They're not driven by ihsan, but they're driven by ri'a and nas meaning by the desire to show off and prestige. Yeah, they're generous, but they're generous because they're they're feeding their ego. Both of these people, so it's not just demanding that you spend your money, but that the driving philosophy be SN, not self-promotion, not prestige, not displays of class, but both of these categories of people—the image—is truly frightening it is as if their companion, their kareen, is shaitan. So failing to live up to this morality is like you've committed yourself, not kuf, not shirk, but to the companionship of the devil, a demonic companionship. And then Allah comes back and says this is the the meaning of 39. If you understand this that when you hold on to your money and you say it's not my problem I have priorities and the priority is myself and whoever I care about. If you understood That, you know, we talk about demonic possession. If you understood that, in effect, you are buying the companionship of the demonic, you want to call it, it's as if you're inviting possession, call it, you're inviting possession. If you only understood this, wouldn't it be the most logical thing? Wouldn't it be the case that you wouldn't need much exhortation to, in fact, spend the way Allah tells you to spend? This is why, at the beginning of the halakha, I opened the way I opened today, because I knew that this was coming. The irony, when I sit and I teach in my Islamophobia class, that every year the Islamophobes raise $100 million to demonize and attack Islam. And they don't raise this money, from governments, they raise this money from private individuals. And we Muslims can't get any moral project, not even the Qur'an, properly funded. And then you know, the number of Muslims that, when you look at their lives, their private lives, and it's a mess, plagued by problems, social problems, problems in business, problems with children, problems, You know, old, and it never dawns on them that what is missing... The reason they don't have the type of life that, you know, easily feeds children into into you know an upward trajectory of success upon success is that they don't have barakah. There's no barakah in their life. And it doesn't dawn on them that they have no barakah because shaitan is their companion. And it is them that invited shaitan as their companion. Because they ignored Allah's book. Now, no. Then Allah comes back and says, Remember that your deal with Allah is that Allah will not begrudge you even as much as... Th- Allah is committed to justice. Everything that involves you and your affairs, when it comes to your faith with God, it is an exacting, just measure. For better or for worse. But understand that if you do good, Allah is eager to multiply the reward. If you do bad, Allah gives you what you deserve, in true measure. A life that is anchored in in the understanding of objective and purpose, but then there is this objective and purpose of personal justice, the inevitability of personal accountability and personal justice. But then Allah reminds us of the covenant. فكيف إذا جئنا من كل أمة بشهيد وجئنا بك على هؤلاء شهيدا؟ فكيف it's like an exclamatory form how about what are what you know don't they contemplate don't they think about when the time comes Allah remember that Allah tells us in Surah Al-Baqarah and in Ali imran that what Allah wants us to do is to rise to the moral level so that we can act as witnesses upon others. But then Allah comes and says, okay, here is your moral challenge. There is personal justice, personal accountability, but remember that there is the other side of the coin. You either are of the moral stature to bear witness as to what is right and what is wrong vis-a-vis others, or you are in a state in which others bear witness against you. In other words, you are the morally inferior person. Add to this that your prophet has a personal interest in his ummah. So your prophet, as you think and you you live and you think of the sunnah of the prophet and the legacy of your prophet and what your prophet means to you and all of that, well, your prophet is going to bear witness as to whether ultimately you disappointed him. As Muslims or not. This is why, at the beginning of the halaqah I reminded you when the Prophet comes, in the, hereafter, and says, "God, my people have ignored the Quran." Because. That is the general, God knows that this is going to happen. God knows that. But you, personally, are you going to be in the camp of those who've ignored the Quran, abandoned the Quran, or in the camp of those where the Prophet actually says, you're not among those who abandoned the Quran, who ignored the Quran. There's a narrative that has always touched me personally um, a lot. Um, as we all know, the 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 life of the Prophet was the Quran. So, and the Prophet just didn't. Love to recite the Quran, but he loved to hear the Quran recited. So the one uh, in this narrative, he the, the Prophet ﷺ tells Ibn Mas'ud recite the Qur'an, I want to hear. So Ibn Mas'ud tells the Prophet, I, I, you want me to recite the Quran? And it was revealed to you, and the Prophet ﷺ says, I'd love to hear it recite. I'd love to listen to it recited. Okay. So Ibn Mas'ud starts reciting Surah Nisa. And he comes to this ayah. فَكَيْفَ إِذَا جِئْنَا مِن كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ And the Prophet's eyes well up in tears. And he motions to Ibn Mas'ud to stop. And he starts weeping. And Ibn Mas'ud didn't I mean, you can imagine the, the, the event. And Ibn Mas'ud, you know, is not going to, uh, so he just reported this. But you can imagine what was in the heart of this man what responsibility to ultimately have to think of the day when the time will come will he will have to confront the reality of who or how many of his ummah actually how his testimony, which way is it going to go for his ummah? How much of his ummah is going to disappoint, and how much of his ummah is not going to disappoint. And when I think that in my eyes, and Allahu Alam, this day and age, it looks to me like most Muslims. Fall in the category of munafiqun. There's no sugar coating it. And then I just have the image of the Prophet weeping when he, when Ibn Mas'ud reaches this ayah. It's a lot. And especially when Allah tells us, "Yawma izin yudu al-ladina kafaroo wa'asu al-rasul, la tussawa bihum al-ard, wa la hadisa," that this day that the Prophet wept about. On this day, those who did not follow the path of the Prophet i.e. the moral message that Surat Nisa is now charging them with, will wish that the entire earth would just collapse upon them. In other words, they would wish they would just vanish. But not meet their accountability and the responsibility. In In other words, not actually be the object of the Prophet's testimony. To hear the ways that they, in fact, deviated from the path of what the Prophet, sallam, taught. If only, you know, I, I, I say it so often, if only Muslims would understand the Qur'an. Can you believe this message? Can you believe that this message has to be accomplished as extracurricular activity? It blows my mind. OK, alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. Let's stop here. Which area did we stop at? 30, no, 40. 42. 40.
0: Forty-two.
1: Okay. Not a lot of progress, but. Okay, Alhamdulillah rabbil Um
0: I'm not gonna do highlights because it was too heavy <laughs> I couldn't get myself together to like do highlights and we there was so much <sighs> I mean, even just the beating verse, just covering that and giving people a window into what's different. Like I was recently invited, I'm going to be doing a um, conversation with someone about conversion, but I was trying to tell them what we're doing here. And one question that, that she wanted to ask me is whats what is, what is, what, what's different about this approach that you're doing with the Qur'an than any other one that's out there? And can you give me an example of something that struck you? And I was thinking, I, I don't know, but this is actually a perfect example because the beating verse is such a – people think they, they – you know, it's like the underbelly. It's, it's like the, the, the Achilles' heel. And then when you hear this approach, it, it's – what can you say? It, it's like reasonable, rational beautiful you know it's it empowers the disempowered it creates a a desire for an institutional process where society can weigh in and come up with um, you know a way of dealing with people with dignity and empowerment i mean there's just so much to be said in just this one treatment of this one verse and this is i mean it's a key to everything that you're presenting here that is so powerful and so revolutionary and it is so sad. I guess I, I just, you know, we're, we're all feeling a lot of heaviness from, from like the beginning of what you said. And I know like the one thing that really continues to bother me, anyone who's on social media, I'm sure, sees this. But the people that are put forward as like the Muslim leaders on social media, the people that are at Ikna and Isna and speaking out, um, and they're organizing these trips to Hajj. And people get so excited about, oh, we're going to go to Hajj. We're going to, you know, join us. We have a few more spaces left. Anyone wants to come? And it just kills me. Like, you know, I want to write on a comment. Are you okay that your money is going to go support the bombing of children in, in Yemen? You're okay with supporting the structure? And then I think, should I? Shouldn't I? should I say something? And then, you know, what's the point? Right? Because, but then I feel like, well, no, maybe I should say something. And I don't know, maybe this is a question I can ask some other time. But if it just starts with us as individuals refusing, I mean, I have friends that, you know, should know better and won't even engage me on this topic of should we or should we not go to Hajj with Saudis the way, I mean, they will openly say, yeah, things suck right now. And we know Saudi is this, that, and the other thing oh, and by the way, did I tell you we're going to Hajj next month? You know, and I, like, what do you do with that? And because people are like, well, this is my, you know, this is this is my, uh, one of the pillars, we have to fulfill it. But it just, again, like, I, I think it just starts with us as individuals saying, no, I am not going to spend my money to support the Saudis. How much, you know, they make so much profit off of this. and know that my money is going to support all of the stuff that the Saudis are doing. How? How can you how can you segment it? And maybe that's just the beginning is to understand that Islam shouldn't be can't cannot be segmented and judgment, you know, justice can't be. But it's it's halakha's like this, it's learning like this that I think can change the way people feel about their faith and that can bring it again like I was seeing as as you know, unifies it as part of you as a, as a whole body, not, you know, even just if individually, we are not thinking of our tradition in a very segmented, compartmentalized, you know, way. Maybe that will start the change and we can act, you know, without this schizophrenia that I think so many Muslims, you know, suffer from. So Alhamdulillah, thank you so much again for this incredible session um, I am so excited for you know. I'm so sorry you you guys don't realize. I mean, we we now we moved from from two holikas to one halakha a week. We thought that life was really crazy when we were doing two holikas a week. We go we drop back to one and life has quadrupled. I, I don't know. It's gotten so much more intense and so much more busy because of the demands of the secular world that it's um, you know I it like you can't help but be resentful you cannot help but be resentful because when you sit and you like listen and you learn here this is what like the sheikh should be doing 24 7. he just should be focused on the quran other people can do all that other stuff but we can't you know we we, we we're not there we can't do it um so it is it is frustrating but but hamdulillah i mean i you know Allah, what Allah wills, uh, you know, I'm grateful that we have this opportunity to gather at least once a week. And inshallah, after this semester, inshallah, we'll be able to go back to more sessions, inshallah, at least for the break. So, but thank you so much. And thank you for being with us. Um, May Allah bless people who are (laughs) here, who are watching. And inshallah, look forward to seeing you next week, inshallah, for another continuing session. Take care. Have a wonderful week. As-salamu alaykum.